Charles Spurgeon once said, Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. Throughout the Bible, and particularly the New Testament, there's not only a description of, but also an expectation of God's people being persecuted and even martyred at worst, and of course at best, uh, opposed at some level by the powers that be in the societies and cultures and governments they were living in and under at the time. In fact, it didn't take long at all after the inception of the New Testament church for the church to come under heavy persecution. We see it all the way back in Acts 4 with the arrest of Peter and John for preaching the gospel, uh, in Acts 6 and 7 with the stoning of Stephen, and in Acts 8 where Saul persecutes the church, it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Then, of course, throughout the rest of the Bible, we find the church facing struggle after struggle, fighting what seems like a never-ending uphill battle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places who often hold sway over the societies and cultures and governments we live in and under. And so in response to all of that, of course, there is a prescription, uh, a game plan, if you will, for how the church should respond to the constant battles it was facing and will continue to face as long as we await the return of Christ to this earth, as long as we're still here, right? And and we're going to get to that in a moment. But first, it helps to understand that for the New Testament church and the New Testament writers, that's not only the way it was, but that's the way they assumed it always would be until Jesus' return. And yet most of us, if not all of us here, we've grown up in an age and society where the church is not only accepted, but celebrated by the culture and government we're living in and under. I mean, if we're being honest, we're used to going to beautiful church buildings with big signs you can see driving down the road from far off and nonstop marketing to a culture uh, until very recently that has largely embraced the existence of the church where we put on public events and broadcast those events and our services to the public on a massive scale. And, And by the way, I love all of that. I do. I love the church. I love the fact that we can worship without interruption and do all kinds of creative outreach to our communities without being persecuted and uh, let the whole world know who we are and where we are and what we're about without fear of being shut down. I love all of that. But it's important we understand that the church all throughout the New Testament not only didn't have that experience, but they also never anticipated that we would. It was largely understood that we would be persecuted, that we would be marginalized for our beliefs, that we would be excluded from many of the benefits offered to the rest of the population by the societies and cultures and governments we're living in and under. Because number one, that's all they knew. And number two, Jesus told them that's the way it would be. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15, 19. And of course, all you have to do is read the rest of the New Testament to see that exactly what Jesus said turned out to be true for the rest of the church. 
And the church expected it to be that way until the end of this age. Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you have Christ shared Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. In other words, look, until Jesus returns, until his glory is revealed, until the end of this age on the earth, there are going to be fiery trials for the church for every generation. This was the expectation not only for them then, but for you and me now. And yet on the whole, I don't think most of us probably think that way today because all we've ever known is a comfortable Christianity where suffering and pain and struggle are to be avoided at all costs. And then along came COVID. And for the first time, the modern church in the West as a whole experienced real suffering and pain and struggle. I have friends who are pastors who literally watched helplessly as many in their congregations died from COVID. I know other pastors who kept their doors open through all of it and faced lawsuits and fines and even arrest at the hands of local authorities and condemnation from other Christians. Most of us shut down our in-person services and all other group gatherings for months because of a deep desire to protect our people from severe illness only to be applauded by some and ripped to pieces by others. And of course, all of our lives were affected, right, in real and profound ways. As businesses closed, communities shut down, our economy ground to a near halt, and isolation and illness took hold in ways we had never experienced before. The truth is, no matter where you stand on all the issues involved with COVID and the many different responses to it, this pandemic has been hard on everyone. It's been a real struggle. And now, just as we're experiencing some relief as the virus seems to be getting weaker, the world is thrown into further turmoil with wars, supply chain disruptions, rising fuel prices, building material price increases, food shortages, and on and on and on it goes. And as the pressure mounts, not only is the world becoming more and more divided, but so is the church. Because we're facing hardships we've never had to face before. And what I'm finding more and more as I talk to Christians is not only a lot of fear and uncertainty, but a whole lot of talk about how we need to try and get back to the way things used to be. Back when our society as a whole viewed the church as something good, even among those who weren't a part of it. Back when being a Christian wasn't as unpopular as it's beginning to be in our culture, and back when the government wasn't hostile toward the church for our long-held beliefs and convictions, and yet here we are in a place we've never been before in our lifetime, and I'm hearing an awful lot of talk among Christians about trying to get things back to the way they used to be. Well, listen, what if God has something better for us than the way it used to be? What if his desire for us is not to go back to the way it was before, but rather to lead us to a place we've never been before? Because if that's what's happening, and I believe it is, then one thing you can count on for certain, the path to get there is going to involve some kind of hardship or struggle or even pain, because it always does. And so maybe rather than trying to avoid the hardship, what if we embraced it and worked together through it for something better than we've ever had before? Look, uh, childbirth, new life. I mean, we all agree, right? That's a wonderful thing. 
It always comes by way of pain and struggle. If you don't believe me, ask a mom. Getting in shape physically comes by way of pain and struggle. Advancing in your career comes by way of sacrifice, hardship, and struggle. Great nations are always born out of hardship, pain, and struggle. Overcoming addiction comes by way of hardship, pain, and struggle. Mending broken relationships through forgiveness and reconciliation comes by way of hardship, pain, and struggle. I mean, we can go on and on here because look, as a rule, the most significant, most important, most valuable aspects of our lives don't improve on their own. Name one great thing that God has ever led anyone into that didn't involve some kind of testing, some kind of hardship or sacrifice or pain or struggle. You can't because you need to be strengthened before you're able to carry a greater load, a greater mantle, a greater ministry or responsibility or position in this world, which means you have to work for it. And working through those areas of your life that he wants to improve always involves sacrifice, hardship, pain, and struggle. It's no different, by the way, for the church as a whole. When God leads us from something good to something better, he always does that through the trials of life because it's the hardship, sacrifice, pain, and struggle that strengthen us, that build us up so we can carry the weight of a greater responsibility that he's leading us into. And by the way, the greater blessing that always comes with it. As we'll see as we finish our study of Romans this morning with Paul's final chapter of the letter, okay? So let's read it together and see how God is constantly working in our lives to make us stronger every day for a better tomorrow. Romans chapter 16, and since the first 16 verses is simply Paul sending his greetings to many of the believers in Rome who've helped him along the way. We're going to begin at verse 17 and read through verse 23 to start. So Romans 16, 17 through 23. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sospiter, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. So after writing this a lengthy and exhaustive letter to the church in Rome for the primary purpose of uniting the Jewish and Gentile Christians there, bringing the church together because there were a lot of divisions. Paul now spends his final words of the letter warning them about becoming divided because there was a lot happening there in and around the church in the first century in Rome. There were Judaizers, those were Jewish Christians who regarded the Levitical laws of the Old Testament as still binding on all Christians, it's what we would call extreme legalism today. Uh, there were libertines, that was the opposite of Judaizers, an extreme form of hedonism where moral laws didn't apply at all. And then there were the Gnostics, people who often professed to be Christians and yet they believed that uh, personal spiritual knowledge took precedence over all other established teachings from the church, including those in scripture. In other words, they believed it was up to each individual to determine their own truth, including their own truth about salvation. Basically, everything that we have in the church today 
they had in the church then, and it was dividing the church then just as it does today. And so Paul says, look, don't put up with that. Just because they come to church and call themselves Christians, don't allow false teachings and unbiblical philosophies to take hold in the church simply because confronting it and dealing with it is hard. It's often a struggle, and at times it's even painful. No, fight the good fight. Don't give up because the church is worth fighting for. Okay, as Christian, as a Christian, you were designed and created and equipped and called to fight in a war. It's all throughout the Bible, to engage in spiritual battle, not against the world, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as the Apostle Paul put it in Ephesians 6.12. In other words, you were intentionally placed by God, you, on this earth, at this specific point in time in history, to make history by fighting for God's mission to save this world through the church as a member of the church, his body. And some of you have heard me talk about the difference between surrender and submission. I won't get into that deeply today, but the idea of surrendering your life to Christ that most of us have grew up, grown up hearing in church, that, listen, that's not only not in the Bible, it's actually an unbiblical concept altogether which means it's vital to the success of the church and its mission that we stop surrendering our lives to Christ and instead submit our lives to Christ, which is what the Bible tells us to do over and over and over again. Because whereas surrender is an act of resignation, submission is a call to action, right? When a soldier surrenders, he bows before the enemy king, lays his weapons down and says, I give up, I surrender. When a soldier submits, he bows before his king, picks his weapons up and says, what are my orders? And so as believers and followers of Christ, we're never called in scripture to surrender. On the contrary, God is calling us to submit by getting in the fight, to fight for lost souls in this world, to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves, to fight for our marriages, to fight for our children, to fight for our families, to fight for the gospel, to fight for the church, to fight for each other. In fact, as a follower of Christ, you should be fighting for the lives of other people just as passionately and purposefully as you fight for your own life. And not just when the fight comes to you either, by the way, but we're to be on the offensive, taking that fight to our enemy. When Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus replied on this rock, on this profession of faith in Christ, on this gospel, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. If you read the phrase, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it in the ancient Greek, the literal rendering of that phrase is the gates of Hades, shall not withstand it. It's actually a very significant difference because when you read it the way most English translations have it, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It sounds like Jesus was saying, listen, no matter what the enemy comes at you with, he will not prevail against you. But when you read it in the original Greek, it's the other way around. I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not withstand it. Okay, Jesus was not saying we will be able to withstand the enemy. No, he was saying the enemy will not be able to withstand us. Because his will for the church is for us to be on the offensive, not huddled up together in fear, hoping we can survive the attacks of the enemy. It's the other way around. The enemy's supposed to be running from us. 
unable to withstand the onslaught of Christians who are relentlessly taking ground back from him and tearing down his strongholds and snatching lost people from the fires of hell before it's too late. Jesus was saying, don't wait for the fight to come to you. No, you take the fight right up to the gates of hell. And no matter what happens, no matter how beat up or bloodied you may be, storm the gates of hell because there's no power in hell that can withstand the power of the church. That's why we don't surrender. We submit. It makes the very next verse, the very next thing that Jesus said make a lot more sense. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's an offensive battle strategy, right, against our enemy, not a defensive one. But listen, it it only works when you join the fight. The ancient battle between the spiritual forces of darkness and the church of Jesus Christ, you have to get in that fight. And of course, the enemy knows that. He's not stupid. He knows he can't win a head-to-head fight with the church. In fact, he's guaranteed to lose that fight every single time, which is exactly why he tries to divide us. Because if he can fool us into fighting with each other, well, that's just as good as us surrendering to him. That's a strategy he's been employing against the church ever since the church began. J.C. Ryle once said, a true Christian is one who is not only peace of conscience, but war within He may be known by his warfare as well as by his peace. So this is how Paul sets the stage for these last comments in the letter by describing the struggle that the church would face in every age. By the way, by the way, this is is not a fight for our survival. You know that. Far too many Christians act like we're fighting today against everything and everybody for the survival of the church, that somehow our government or the media or politicians or even our culture can somehow destroy the church if things keep going the way they're going. Well, that's not so. We're not fighting to keep the church alive. Jesus already promised not only our survival, but the victory of the church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Paul says in verse 20, we just read it, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet ours. Okay, the future of the church is guaranteed. We're not fighting for survival. We're fighting for unity because that is not guaranteed. That is something the church can and has at times throughout its history lost to divisions within, within the church. And think about that for a minute because when local churches close their doors, it's never because of pressure coming against it from the outside world. No, it's always because of pressure coming against it from within the church. Division, disunity within the body is what tears local churches apart every time. So Paul says, look, there is always going to be pressure levied against the church from the outside world in every age, just as we're beginning to experience in our country today. That's to be expected In fact, you and I were created by God specifically for this time in history, which means we are the ones specifically equipped to go through what we're going through today and we'll go through tomorrow. So stop lamenting about how things used to be and instead strengthen yourselves for the challenges ahead because a unified church is an unstoppable force in this world, which means what we stand to gain before us is far greater than what is behind us. This is what Paul spends the last three verses of this letter explaining how a church that fights for the lost and fights for each other 
gets stronger every day. Let's read it together, verse 25 to the end of the chapter. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So Paul starts off with now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So God strengthens his church through the preaching of the gospel. Right? And the word preaching that Paul uses there in the Greek, kerugma, specifically means that the message is proclaimed. Right? It's, it's not just the idea of living out the gospel in front of people. It is that, but it's more than that. It's actually proclaiming verbalizing the gospel, right? So Paul says the church is strengthened through the proclamation of the gospel. In other words, you cannot hide what you've been given. The gospel is to be preached to the lost for salvation and preached to the found for strengthening the church. In Mark 4, 24 and 25, Jesus said, pay attention to what you hear. He's talking about the gospel. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That was actually an ancient Jewish proverb that shows up in various forms and literature from that time period. One version says it this way, in the pot in which you cook for others, you will be cooked. The, the literal translation from the Greek as Mark wrote it says, in whatever measure you measure, it will be measured to you and will be added to you. There are also at least two other uh, popular versions from the same time period, the same saying in the Talmud. It's the central text of rabbinic Judaism. The point is, Jesus was using a very familiar saying at the time that they would have all understood. And yet instead of applying it to some common aspect of Hebrew culture as it often was, Jesus was applying it to the gospel. He was saying, you cannot hide what you've been given. You have to proclaim it to each other and to the rest of the world. And if you don't, in fact, if you conceal it long enough, what you have will be taken from you. Why? Because you can't be trusted with it. Yet if you reveal it to the world, if you let this light of truth that you've been given come out of your mouth and shine through your life for all to see, even more will be given to you because you've proven yourself faithful with what you've been given. In other words, no matter how good it may have been before, when you share what you've been given, even when it's hard, you'll be given more than you've ever had before. So don't lose your testimony. Right? This is basically another version of the parable of the talents. If you're familiar with that story in Matthew 25, which ends with Jesus saying, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Matthew 25, 29. Okay, look, the church is the harbinger of truth in this world. We have been entrusted with the gospel. The most profoundly life-transforming message in all of human history. Now why do you think we've been given this truth? Is it just so that we can be saved? Right, if that was the case, then Jesus' great commission to his disciples would have been all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and be saved. But that's not what he said, is it? No, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
We are the church, which means we cannot hide what we've been given, and yet I've had so many people who profess to be Christians over the years, just happened to me recently, say, when I try to talk to them about Jesus, they say, well, listen, Pastor, my faith is a private matter. No, it isn't. There is nothing private about your faith in Christ. Nothing. Listen, Jesus didn't allow himself to be mocked, beaten, tortured, nailed to a Roman cross, and brutally murdered so that you could have a private faith. Uh Uh-uh. I'm sorry. If sharing the gospel with other people makes you uncomfortable, too bad. If people can march down the streets of our cities boldly celebrating every kind of sin imaginable, surely we can boldly proclaim the righteousness of Christ to our neighbor. We cannot hide what we've been given. Otherwise, Jesus said what we have will be taken away. We'll lose our testimony. Look, if you can't let your light shine in this highly religious Christian culture that we're living in, at least compared to other parts of the world, then what do you think is going to happen to your private faith the moment any real pressure is applied to Christians in this country? I'll tell you what's going to happen. Your private faith won't last two seconds because if you can't let the truth of the gospel shine through you when it's easy, you will never let the gospel shine through you when it's hard. Listen, the days of comfortable Christianity are drawing to a close in this culture. But instead of longing for the days behind us, let's look forward to the days ahead where we will increasingly have opportunities to share the gospel like never before, to see a harvest of souls like we've never seen before. Okay, the the days ahead of us are far more promising than the days behind us. I'm just saying let's not blow it because we're too preoccupied trying to make sure the world is comfortable with us and our message. R.C. Sproul said we're allowing God to be eclipsed by vignettes of pop psychology from the pulpit or by ministers communicating their private opinions on social and political issues of the day. It is the duty of the church in every generation of every pastor and of every Christian to take up that lamp, cast the basket aside, and put the light in a prominent place where people can behold the truth of God and of his Son. Let's continue. Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been known, uh, made known to all nations. So according to Paul, for long ages, the mystery of Jesus Christ was kept secret, but now has been disclosed. Things are different now than they used to be because Jesus Christ has now been revealed to the world. How? Paul says through the prophetic writings, through the scriptures. Okay, so not only is the church strengthened through the proclamation of the gospel, but also through the revelation of Christ in the scriptures. Right? Jesus said we're living in the last days. In other words, uh, this isn't a dress rehearsal. No, we are right now living in the very days Jesus was describing back then in his word. But of course, if you don't believe that, well, then you won't live with any sense of urgency whatsoever concerning the gospel and your personal responsibility to spread that gospel at all costs, by the way, to you and to your family, which perfectly describes much of the American church today where through our prosperity, which I'm still not sure is a blessing or a curse, we have been lulled to sleep. 
Even though Jesus said we're to live with a sense of urgency concerning these last days that we're living in, the church in many cases has fallen asleep. And listen, it's time to wake up from our spiritual slumber because we cannot claim to believe what Jesus said and at the same time be apathetic about those who have yet to meet him. So if we truly believe Jesus, when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If we really do believe that, then why isn't the majority of our time and energy and resources and talent and effort directed at spreading the gospel, right? at telling people about Jesus? Right? What excuse can we possibly offer that would justify the fact that most of us, if we're being honest, spend greater amounts of time and energy trying to secure things like our own retirement plans, working toward that than we do on securing and working toward God's eternal plan for those who are still lost without him? Right, because if what Jesus said is true, then our time on this earth is growing short, and yet there are a lot of people all around us who are dying and going to hell. What could we possibly be saving for that is more important than saving human souls? I mean, what excuse will we give when the end of days comes and we give an account for how we lived our lives in these last days? What excuse will be good enough for the fact that we didn't tell people about Jesus before it was too late when we could have. What excuse, that it, that it made me feel uncomfortable? That's not good enough. That I was too busy? That's not good enough. That evangelism wasn't my calling? Sorry, that's not good enough. I couldn't handle the rejection. No, that's not good enough. I didn't feel spiritually qualified. I wasn't a good enough Christian myself to tell people about Jesus. No, that's not good enough. Well, how about it was gonna put me and my family at risk? Sorry, not even that is good enough. You see, the fact is, there will never be an excuse good enough to excuse our failure to spread the gospel with urgency in these last days. We have this word of God, these holy scriptures in the Bible where Jesus Christ is revealed to save the lost and to strengthen the church. The question is, what are you doing with it? Are you consuming and sharing the word of God more than you consume and share what's going on in the world today, current events? Are you taking in scriptures more than you take in the news? Are you more familiar with the teachings of Christ than you are with the talking points of your favorite candidate? Do you spend time studying God's word more than you study other interests in your life? Because Jesus said we're living in the last days and we have everything we need in his word to guide us through the days ahead. Days ahead that may well become increasingly uncomfortable for the church and yet again, Look, you and I were specifically created and called and prepared for this very hour we're living in. So let's make the most of it because we stand to gain far more ahead of us than we ever had behind us. Charles E. Fuller once said, to know the word of God, to live the word of God, to preach the word, to teach the word is the sum of all wisdom, the heart of all Christian service. Then finally, Paul says, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. 
So not only is the church strengthened by the proclamation of the gospel and the revelation of Christ in the scriptures, but also through the obedience of faith. And if you read that phrase, the obedience of faith, in the original Greek, it's directly translated as might believe and obey him. In other words, this is a reference to those who are lost and coming to Christ through obedient faith. How? According to the command of the eternal God. And to whom is that command given? You and me, God's people. Are you getting the picture? At the end of this most important letter, Paul is saying, look, no matter what is going on in the world around you, the church should be getting stronger every day. And the way we do that, the way we continue to grow stronger is by continuing to do what Jesus called us to do, to make disciples of all nations, of all people in every age and every stage of life, regardless of how hard it may become. But look, if the measure of your faith is dependent upon the manner of your circumstances, fear will rule your life. If your faith is dependent upon your circumstances, you're in trouble because fear is gonna rule your life. So don't get sentimental about the days gone by because there are better days ahead. In fact, we were put here on this earth for such a time as this, as Mordecai told Esther in her own time of testing. So whatever it is that we're going through in our lifetime, whatever hardship or struggle or persecution or pain that we may face in this age of the church, God has placed you and me here to be the ones who go through it. In fact, it was foreordained before he set the foundations of the earth. I mean, how many times in my own life have I thought, well, gee, I don't know if I can do this. I'm not the Apostle Paul. Listen, no one was equipped to do what I was put here to do more than me because God put me here at this time in history. He put you here now. You're the one. He's equipped to do what he's called you to do. Okay, adversity is not something you run from. It's something you learn from. Right? So don't despise whatever comes your way. Face it. Embrace it. And let's stay together through it. And as we faithfully lead others to Christ, even as the church is increasingly marginalized in society, Paul says the church will grow stronger every day. And sure, I mean, there's no doubt about it. We're in a place today we've never been before, at least in our lifetime. And so it's easy to wish things were the way they used to be, but I believe God has something better for us than the way it used to be. I'm convinced his desire for us is not to go back to the way it was before, but rather to lead us to a place we've never been before. And yet getting there is always going to involve some kind of hardship or struggle or even pain. It always does. But that's okay, because that's how we grow together. That's how we move forward together. And that's how we get stronger together. Not by looking back, but by looking forward as God leads us together to a place we've never been before. Let's pray.